We're going to finish our first major prophet this morning. I'm really moving forward on this journey through the Bible. Uh, here's the timeline. And you can see where Isaiah prophesied from the time of Uzziah, who finished in 740 B.C., to at least the beginning of Manasseh in 686 B.C. And he covered what major significant historical event? Babylon. You're close. Assyrian. Assyrian captivity, yes. One of them. <laughs> yeah, here's what he covered. Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, but Isaiah was prophesying in the southern kingdom, so that didn't affect them, right? They, they just got shut up like a bird in a cage. Yeah, it affected them pretty dramatically. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people in Judah died as a result. Not necessarily in Jerusalem, but there, other cities got captured too. So yeah, the Assyrians were the big enemy. However... By the time we finish the first half of uh, the book, a little bit more than half, 39 chapters, um, there's a new enemy that is being talked about. And who's the new enemy? Babylon. Yeah, that's Babylon. And eventually Babylon took them captive, although over 100 years after Isaiah died, um, or somewhere in the neighborhood of a century after that. All right, so our outline, I, I, uh, I put the part we've already covered in gray, um, which is the first 39 chapters. Um, and we talked last week about how you can divide the 66 chapters of the book into two, 39 for the first half, 27 for the second half, which just happens to correspond to what other numbers that we know about. Yeah, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, for a grand total of 66. Um, we did we did most of this this section here, deliverance and restoration of Israel. We're just we're going to finish that up, and then we're going to do these next two sections: the servants' ministry and Israel's restoration, and finally, everlasting deliverance and judgment. So, uh, this is all what we did last time this section called Deliverance and Restoration of Israel. And uh, chapter 40 starts with uh, what I titled Clear the Way for the Lord. And, and it's a prophecy that is quoted by who in the New Testament? John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist quotes it. He says, you know, I'm the one that's making a way straight in the wilderness. Which is very interesting because we already said that this second half corresponds to the 27 books in the New Testament and here we have the very first section has the prophecy of John the Baptist. Um, then we had the prophecy of Cyrus, although his name isn't given until later in the book. Um, then we have the true servant of the Lord in chapter 42. Now, I call this the true servant of the Lord because prior to this in the book we've learned about the servant of the Lord, but it was somebody else. Who was it? The nation of Israel. It was a nation of Israel. Yeah, you are my servant, O Israel, God says. But servants are supposed to do what the master says, and, and they didn't. So then God introduces, or Isaiah introduces, this, the true servant of the Lord. And we'll see more about him in, in this morning's lesson. Now, I should mention that in the first half of the book, we had a section that was about uh, Emmanuel. Chapter 7, 
chapter 9, and chapter 11. And in, in those three chapters, we learn about the virgin birth. We learned he was going to be descended from Jesse, in other words, son of David. And he would be called amazing things like everlasting father, um, mighty God, and, and terms like that. In this section, but he was never, but in, in the first section, he wasn't called the servant of, of the Lord. And so in this section, we have the servant of the Lord. And there's no statement that I know of in the book that says they're the same person. And so you can understand how someone in Jesus' day would have been reading this and wondering, you know, how many, how many different people are being predicted here? And there was one guy who was especially puzzled. Who was that? The Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading chapter 53 and he was asking Philip, you know, who's, who's Isaiah talking about? Himself or somebody else? Um, I mean, we, we can read it in hindsight and, you know, we see that Isaiah 7, 9, 11 are predicting the very same person as is predicted here in chapter 42, the servant, the true servant of the Lord, but they wouldn't have known that. And that that's a very common uh, feature of prophecy where it, it, you get some general ideas, but it's only in hindsight that you see how completely accurate was the prophecy. Um, And we got up through chapter 47, which was a lament for Babylon, because there's going to be, when he talks about Cyrus, Cyrus is the one that conquered Babylon. And so now we're ready for the last chapter in this section, chapter 48, an appeal to sinful Israel. Um, In verse 1 he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and evoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. So this chapter is, is really a, a, a rebuke to them because although they, they like to claim that God is their God, they don't obey. And something like, I mean, you think of our nation, we, on our coins we have the God we trust, but in fact the, the, the behavior of the nation is very far from trusting in God. Um, verse 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? And this is a, a feature we find throughout the, the Old Testament that um, when Israel misbehaves, it, it damages God's name because God is their God. And so God says, I'm going to act for my name. I'm not going to allow you to keep on profaning my name by behaving this way. Um, then the chapter turns a corner and, and, and there's prophecies of, of wonderful things to come. In verse 20, what are they to go forth from? Babylon. Yeah, so this is a prophecy of the restoration, the return from captivity in Babylon now. Um, and then finally in verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. He's prophesying peace for the Israel, but not for the wicked. And we're going to see this as we go on in, in the book that God continues to predict wonderful things for His people in the future. But He always counters that with, but there's not going to be peace for the wicked. These promises for good things are only for the people that are going to do things God's way instead of doing things their own way. 
Now the next section, there's only two sections left, the servant's ministry and Israel's restoration. Now who do we mean by the servant? Jesus. Yeah, this is the one. He is, he's the only one who could possibly have fulfilled uh, these prophecies of the servant. So chapter 49, God's salvation will reach the end of the earth. And this, there's somebody talking in, in this uh, section. He says, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Who's talking here? Jesus. Yeah, this is again the servant of the Lord. This is Jesus. <clears throat> and, and we find out in the next verse. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Wait a minute. You said it was Jesus. And he says he's, this is Israel. It's still Jesus. <laughs> it's still Jesus. <laughs> yeah, ver- this is strange. He says, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered he calls himself the servant Israel, but then he says his job is to bring Israel back to God. So obviously he's not Israel. What is going on here? Why does he call himself Israel? Because the nation of Israel foreshadowed Jesus as a servant. Yeah, Jesus is doing what Israel was supposed to have been. Israel was supposed to have been the servant of God. They failed. So God sends them a new servant who he calls Israel because this man is finally going to do what Israel was always supposed to do but never did. And then, um, in verse 4, this is a very surprising thing, although later there's lots more of it in the book, but he says, I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. He's saying, it's all a waste. It's a big failure. Now in verse 5, we read that his job was to bring Israel back. And, but in verse 4, he's saying, I have failed. It's just not working. Now, who would have thought, 700 years before Jesus, who would have thought that the Messiah, and, it, and I'm sure that Jesus understood this was the Messiah, that the Messiah would, would feel like he's a failure. But that's what's, what's going on here. And of course, we, we all know in the life of Jesus, it looked like he was. A failure. Because everyone was leaving him. He was finally left with just, you know, a handful of people following him. And then, you know, the, the whole nation rejected him, crucified him, they said. But here's God's response. When the servant says, I'm a failure, God says in verse 6, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God is turning failure into a bigger success. Because the nation rejects him, God says, well, that was just a small task for you, just to restore Israel. I'm going to make you restore the whole world. <laughs> and here, and, and I mentioned last week that this second half of Isaiah has an awful lot about the Gentiles in it. And here's one of these examples where we find the Messiah is going to bring the Gentiles in. And you may recall that was the thing that the Jews hated the most about Christianity. When the Apostle Paul went to the Gentiles, the Jews just got mad. You remember when he made the speech and, and he said, well, God told me to go to the Gentiles. They started saying, away from such a man, he's not fit to live on the earth. But their own 
Scripture's prophesied it. And then in chapter 50, we read that God helps his suffering servant. Um, in verse 4, he's still the one talking. Now, in between, he, he didn't talk the whole time. I'm, I'm having to skip over to cover a lot of chapters this morning. But in verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And then in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Now, isn't that terrible? I mean, here is the Messiah being sent to the people and, the, and they've been waiting for the Messiah for all these centuries. And what do they do to him? They beat him and, and they pull his beard out and they spit on him. But isn't that exactly what we read about in the Gospels? Um, and then down to verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. That's the Gospel being preached. Come to Jesus is what this is saying. Now, now, but I want you to notice, that walks in darkness and has no light? People that are in darkness and know they're in darkness, they want light, so they come to Jesus. He's the light. But watch what happens in verse 11. There's another way to get light. Where do the people in verse 11 get light from? They make it themselves. They make it themselves from their own fire. What's going to be the end of them? Torment. They're going to lie down in torment. And, and, and today, you have people in the world who think they've got, they got, I got all the light I need. They make it themselves. And then you have, you have other people that say, this is so dark, I can't see. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you light. And they do. That's what was being predicted in Isaiah chapter 50. 51, the Lord will comfort Zion. What's Zion? Jerusalem. Yeah, that, that's Jerusalem. Of course, spiritual Zion means more than that. When we get to the New Testament, we learn that it's more than that. But the, they didn't know that at the time when this was being written. Um, verse 3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness, He will make like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Now, the immediate fulfillment of this would be restoration from the Babylonian captivity. And when the people came back, I'm sure they, they would read this verse and they say, wow, this is being fulfilled. This is so wonderful. But it didn't take too many years after that for them to realize, you know, we're still really in captivity. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. They were still looking for the fulfillment when Jesus came. Now the first part of chapter 52 I've titled, The Lord Will Redeem Zion. And verse 7 is a pretty famous verse. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Um, that was, that, that's how it's going to be to them when the Lord announces this wonderful news. But the wonderful news comes in a very strange way. And that's, this is really the climax, in my judgment, this is the climax of the whole book. It starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. Um, let me start reading there. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
That's what we want. That's what we're thinking about. That, that's exactly what you expect of the Messiah. But just as many were as many were astonished that you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Israel was marred. I mean, Israel went into terrible captivity. They were just decimated. And this one who is a servant, who is also called Israel, is going to go through the same experience personally. Now, drop down to chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. We saw that a couple chapters before him being spit on. And now we're going, getting more detail. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You remember when he was on the cross, the, the, the priests were mocking him, saying, hey, he trusted in God. Well, if God likes him so much, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. What they were saying is, God has smitten him. And, and, and that's what was being predicted 700 years before it happened. But what was really happening, verse 4 answers, what's the, what was really going on? He did, it for us. he did it for us. He's carrying our sorrows. This is not because God doesn't like him. He's not being smitten by God. He's carrying our sorrows. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. I don't know anywhere in the Old Testament where you learn that a human being should take the place of some other human being in terms of being punished for their sins. But here we find this in this very detailed prediction of the crucifixion of Jesus that when he was scourged, we got healing out of that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, a doctrine you do find throughout the Old Testament is that when you sacrifice an animal, you put your sins on the animal. But now we find the sins are being put on upon a person. A person who is the highest ever predicted in the Old Testament, the servant of God who is completely faithful. And, and he goes on, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. That sounds like his trial before Pilate or before Herod. <coughs> like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. <coughs> By oppression and judgment he was taken away. It was not a fair trial. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Now he's dead. We've got to the end of, of that Friday and he's hanging there on the cross, dead. And no one understands why. His grave was assigned with wicked men. By rights he should have been thrown out with, with all the other criminals who were crucified. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. What's that about? Buried in the tomb. Yeah. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, loaned him his tomb because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So now not only is he dead, he's buried. 
But the Lord was, cru- was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How's that possible? He's dead and buried. How is it possible he's going to prolong his days? This is the resurrection. This is exactly what's being predicted here. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, for I will allot to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded with the transgressors. So in this chapter we have a prediction of his death, his burial, his resurrection. And we have the doctrine of why he did it. It wasn't just a prediction that he would do it, but the why. It's for us, for our sins. He, he, he was bearing our iniquities. This is one of the greatest prophecies in the whole Bible. It's just, it's, it's a fantastic passage. Well, the book's not over. Um, the next chapter talks about the wonderful future of of Zion, because the people's future is is directly tied up with the work of the of this servant. Because of what he's done here, God can now bless Zion. Now we don't we don't learn in the Old Testament Zion's going to have a broader name than just Jerusalem. But here's what he says in verse seven of, of this chapter. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Well, that was originally written, of course, for the Jews, but we need to understand that this, the longer term fulfillment of this, it applies to Christians. All of us are spiritual Zion. And... God was angry with us too, but with great compassion He is gathering us. With everlasting uh, loving kindness He is having compassion on us. But the reason is in the previous chapter. Because He put our iniquities upon this suffering servant. Chapter 55, God offers mercy for free. I like how this chapter starts. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money or without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Well, what's, what's the food being talked about in these verses? Jesus, salvation. Salvation, yes. Salvation. And... and People all around us are, are spending their money for what is never going to satisfy their souls. And the invitation here is, I've got the food you need. You can, you can have it for free. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have life in you. He says, I am the bread of life. That's what this is predicting. And the no money part means that you, you don't, there is no coin that can buy this. Right, the reason it's free is because it's priceless. <laughs> we can never pay for it. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a great, a great offer of the gospel in this, in this chapter. Chapter 56, I've divided this up into two parts. The first eight verses says even the foreigner and the eunuch will be included. And I, and I should mention the eunuch was not allowed to, to, to enter into the assembly and go into the tabernacle with other people um, in, the, in the Old Testament. But in this chapter, God is opening up everybody. Um, I'll just read what it says about the foreigners here in verse 6. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Where is the last part of that verse quoted in the New Testament? When Jesus cleansed the temple. Yeah, they were making merchandise of it, and he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. <clears throat> yeah, he, he was very upset for what they were doing. But this is, it's in a context where the Gentiles are being invited in to be part of God's people. Now, the second half of the chapter goes on into, that didn't, goes on into the next chapter. 56, 92, the whole of chapter 57. Um, he rebukes the evil leader. It, it, you can see, I, I couldn't put the two together in one topic. I mean, the one topic is a wonderful invitation for, for, for people who were normally excluded from the congregation. They're going to come in. The other part is just a, a Severe rebuke for the leaders of Israel that were just terrible. Um, verse 10. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark. Verse 12. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink. Um, heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's just all, That was their attitude. So the whole next chapter is just a rebuke to these, these people and the sin, sinful way they're behaving. And then, well, actually I told you wrong when I said it was a whole chapter 57. It only went through verse 13 of 57. Um, the rest of 57, starting in verse 14, um, God, God will be with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. Um, in verse 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In our lectureship, we had one, one of our three topics was on this, which was, what was that? Yeah, walk humbly with the with the Lord your God. Last section in the book: everlasting deliverance and judgment. Um, and, and this is a it's a little bit of an odd section. If if you're thinking, well, you know, we've come up through chapter fifty-three, the peak, the sacrifice of the Messiah, and and then. And then we've read these chapters of, 
of the offer of free mercy and, and, and Zion being brought back home. You would think in the final chapters, you would just have this beautiful picture like at the end of the book of Revelation of this city of God with you know the gates made out of pearls and the streets of gold and so on and so forth. But it isn't like that. <laughs> it has that in it. It really does have those things in it. But it's intermixed with warnings of, of judgment and, and, and warnings that the people need to repent. And what I get from this is exactly what all of us on this side of the cross know perfectly well. And that is that, yes, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But no, that doesn't mean that you can just do as you please and it'll be just fine. That there is a requirement for each of us to become like the servant. We've got to become like Jesus if, if we want to have all these great blessings. And, and so, the future is not unmixed. There's two halves of this future after the, after the servant of the Lord offers himself as a sacrifice. And the two halves depend on how you're living your life whether you're trying to be like the servant or whether you're walking in the, in the fire you've kindled for yourself. And, and so the, this first one, the, the chapter 58, is a good example of this because it really talks about external observance versus true religion. Verse 3, the people are, are talking to God and they say, Why have we fasted and you do, do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And here's God's answer. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. It was nothing but external. Um, who in the New Testament are, are famous for their fasting? Yeah, the Pharisees. Yeah, and you remember one of them went up to the temple to pray and how, how often did he fast? Twice a week. And, he, and you know, he was thankful to God that he did that. <laughs> just like these people but they're puzzled you know since we fasted it but it didn't get us anything <laughs> and so God's trying to explain to them what true religion is about in verse 6 is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke and this again goes back to our lectures about doing justice and loving mercy. That's the kind of fast God wants from people. Verse 7, Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You may recall the, the story Jesus told the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus laid at the rich man's gate. And apparently the, the rich man didn't do a thing for him. And, and in this passage it says, he basically, he was hiding himself from his own flesh. Lazarus was his own flesh, but he was hiding himself. Um, verse 13. It's because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you right in the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Several months ago I preached about 
the fact that God wants us to delight in Him. And here he's telling how to do that. If you want to delight in, in God, you've got to try to put self aside and, and quit trying to seek your own pleasure and to seek God. And it seems an impossibility. How could we force ourselves to take the light that God is going to give us that as a gift if we'll, if we'll take that step, try to put aside our own selfish interests, seek Him, then we'll truly delight on Him. And He says, He'll make you right on the heights of the earth. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Chapter 59. Sin separates from God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So we're back to rebuke here. Pretty stern rebuke. Um, and he goes through a number of verses like this, but I want to look at chapter, in verse 15, the second half of verse 15, because it, it's strange. It starts in his paragraph, smacking the little first. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. There's nobody to solve this problem. All these people are sinning. No one to solve this problem, so God, God is just amazed. There's nobody, but He says, well, I'll just do it myself then. And that's exactly what He did, because He sent His Son to this earth for us. And then in verse 20, a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression and Jacob declares the Lord. This is, of course, the doctrine of, of the grace of God. The, we're not the ones that went up to heaven to bring Christ down. God of His own strength sent Him for us. Chapter 6, he talks about a glorified Zion. Um, verse 3, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Or verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Or verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. What's that sound like in the New Testament? Revelation. Revelation, yeah. The very end of Revelation when... when when we talk about the New Jerusalem. And, and indeed, the Revelation writer quotes from at least two of these three verses that I just read. In fact, I think he may quote from all three. Um, that at the end of Revelation, the, the, the writer is sort of doing um, kind of a commentary on these last few chapters of Revelation, of Isaiah, I mean. So at the end of Revelation, he's, he's showing us what the last few chapters of Isaiah were really about. And, and I should mention we, we talked about this a lot when we when we studied the book of Revelation but many of these prophecies began to be fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross but the final fulfillment the ultimate fulfillment does not come until you get to the very end of the book of Revelation a time which from our perspective is yet future 
we haven't got there yet. And, and so certainly you can find places in the epistles where it shows these things are being fulfilled now in our own lifetimes. But that does not exhaust these prophecies. Um, we're in the down payment part of prophecy. God's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. But we don't have all of these, prom- the, these prophecies fulfilled in their fullness yet. We're still walking in hope. All right, chapter 61. Good news for the afflicted. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who's talking here? Yeah, we're back to the servant of God again. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, and so on and so forth. Where is this quoted in the New Testament? Jesus preached a sermon about it. Yeah. Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and he got up and he read these verses. Now, when Luke quotes it, he quotes through verse 2a. <laughs> he ends with, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he doesn't mention, and the day of vengeance of our God. Um, and Jesus was certainly there to pro- try to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, but the day of vengeance also had to happen for the people that rejected him. Chapter 62, the Lord will delight in Zion. Talking about talking to the people of Jerusalem in verse 4, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married, and the Lord delight for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. And again we remember that at the very end of the book of Revelation, the people are invited to the marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and he marries the church. And that's again what this is a prophecy of ultimately. Chapter 63, God's vengeance. Um, this, is, this is an interesting poetic um, technique used here starting in verse 2. Someone's talking to God here. And he says, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? You know, people in those days when they would stomp on the grapes, the juice would splatter on the bottoms of the garments, they would get all stained. And he's saying, well, how come your, your garments look like that? And he, God answers, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their life's blood is sprinkled on my garments, and, and I stained all my raiment. What kind of a wine trough is this that he's stomping in? He's on blood here. Yeah, this is a day of vengeance, and, and he, he's he's destroying nations and killing people because of their sins. And he he likens it to tromping out the juice of grapes, and he and his garments are all getting splattered with the juice of grapes. It's, it's blood. It's a very graphic picture here. 
Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. That's the reason why this was all happening. Well, we turn from that to chapter 64, a prayer for mercy. And I'll just read verse 9 here. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look, now all of us are your people. Um, And there's times when God even is angry with us, and and we have to remember these prayers too. Um, We... Sometimes we need to be disciplined when we've sinned. Um, But we need to remember that we are God's people and ask Him for mercy. Well, chapter 65, the first portion, judgment on a rebellious people. Um, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said... Here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. Yeah, Gentiles. Then he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to the rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Now who's that? Jewish. The Jewish people, yeah. This is a description of exactly what happened in, in the book of Acts. As Paul would always go to the Jews first and they would just rebel. And then he would spread out. He he would offer the gospel to the Gentiles and they would joyously come in. So it's about judgment on rebellious people. And then the second half of the chapter, starting verse 17, new heavens and a new earth. Um, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What's that remind you of? Peter said Yes, yeah. Um, he's going to destroy it. We're looking for new heaven and new earth. Yeah. And I, I'm also thinking of Revelation as well. Yeah. And then the last verse of the chapter. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm at all my holy mountain, says the Lord. A beautiful picture of peace being predicted here. And then finally, the last chapter, heaven is God's throne and He will judge in righteousness. Uh, and this, this has the same contrast that I've been talking, that I talked about earlier. But we would expect this last section to be all about wonderful good things, um, and basically all about heaven is what we think. But it's not. It's about the kingdom of God. And, the, and we're in the kingdom of God now, but we're also in a time when there's lots of people who aren't and, and there's opposition and, and, and rebellion. And so even right up to the very last chapter, we have this contrast back and forth. In verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? Who quotes that in the New Testament? Stephen. Yeah, Stephen in, in his trial. Yeah. And then in verse 4, he says... Um, so I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread because I called but no one answered. I spoke but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. So there's punishment coming. But the whole chapter is not about bad things. Look in verse 19. 
I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. The gospel is going to go throughout the world. That's what that's saying. And and then finally, and and it's odd, but it stays good up until all the way to the end of verse 23. Then the last verse of the chapter. Strange way to end the book, but then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence of all mankind. That's a pretty solemn warning to end the book with. Of course, the book of Revelation also ends with an invitation and a warning. Um, the, the New Testament doesn't just end with, hey, everything's going to be great. It's going to be great for those who are willing to do it God's way, but for those who reject the, the invitation, it's going to be terrible judgment. Any last questions, thoughts on the book of Isaiah? All right, it's a great book. Um, Next week we start another major prophet, Jeremiah.